Welcome to Care Under Fire. Today I'm here with Christy Rowe, former ADF nursing officer and veteran of Afghanistan, and now anaesthetic registrar. Welcome, Christy, and thanks for coming on. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me here. Start at the beginning, I suppose. Uh, tell me about your younger years growing up. How did you go at school? Were you always a genius or did that come along later? <laughs> <laughs> Far, far from a genius, <laughs> thanks. Uh, so I I grew up in uh, rural New South Wales, um, out at a place called Balatta and Narrabri, uh, sort of lived between a farm there. Um, and when I was about five, we moved to town, uh, but my parents still have the property. And I did my whole schooling at Narrabri, um, Narrabri West Public School and then Narrabri High School. Yeah. And then I didn't, I ended up moving to Sydney uh, when I started uni. Um, yeah, so it was quite, uh, <laughs> certainly not a genius. Um, my mum was a school teacher and my dad uh, worked on the farm. Yeah. And it was uh, a pretty fun, relaxed uh, upbringing, I think. How was that, moving to Sydney to study nursing from basically a very small regional community? That was quite an experience. Yeah. I remember I drove myself down there and previously I'd only ever dealt with traffic lights in Tamworth to do my reserve unit. <laughs> now I still doesn't have any traffic lights. And I think I arrived in Sydney at maybe 12.30 or something and it took me three and a bit hours to get to Redfern, approximately two and a half Ks. Oh, wow, yeah, <laughs> that traffic. Uh, mainly because I got so lost. Oh. Um, no, it was quite an experience, uh, but I really, I had a great group of friends there. I lived in student housing for my first year, um, made a bunch of good uh, friends and really, really enjoyed it, but found it very different mm. <laughs> to growing up. I bet, yeah. And before that big move, you decided to join the Army Reserve as a, as a truckie, right? Yes, I did. I had um, I'd initially applied for the Air Force, uh, but then I ended up needing glasses, so I wasn't suitable. I failed their medical, and the lovely recruiting gentleman at yeah. Newcastle suggested that I try for Army Reserves, and so I put that application in and went off to Kapuka after about a fortnight um, because I sort of submitted all the other all the other paperwork could be ticked off. And after Kapuka, when you got to choose what to do, it was between Clark and transport. And I really liked the idea of driving trucks at the time. Um, and I was based at 1216th and I had the best time of my probably army career at that unit. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot of fun. A lot of great people. Good yep. social life, good training. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you get coded on? Unimog or? Yes, Unimog. Um, and obviously did all the medium rigid vehicles yeah. didn't get to do my hr course because by then i went to uni and never quite sorted out the timing mm. um but just really enjoyed driving around uh <laughs> with the cab guys in my uni mog <laughs> it was a lot of fun i reckon that would be very reassuring for a lot of patients to know that their doctor used to be a truck driver <laughs> 
Look, I've definitely taken over and driven an ambulance a few times outfield. So. <laughs> Good on you, multi-talented. So why did you decide to study nursing? I initially, uh, I sort of applied for law and for nursing. Um, I like the idea of helping people. Um, I didn't have any health uh, sort of in the family history. Nobody was really into health. I had randomly done a, a work placement in U10 at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, although at the time, I don't think I was really that invested in it. Yeah. I just really enjoyed the idea of helping people and certainly at a high school did not have the marks to get into medicine or the drive <laughs> to study medicine. I had a great deal of fun studying nursing. Mm. I perhaps didn't attend that many lectures. Um, <laughs> just what you needed to to get through. Yeah, right. um, I very much enjoyed my placement though, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I studied at UTS um, and I had a really good course. Um, and I just, I just felt like I had a sort of drive to help people and found that nursing really fitted that at the time. Um, mm. And, and really enjoyed it in the job. Yep. Yeah. And were you then picked up through the undergrad scheme with Army in your final year of study and sort of become full-time? Yeah, it was actually my OC at the time. So I, I'd started at 1216th um, and then transferred um, to HSEC in Randwick. And at the time I was then mm-hmm. working sort of part-time as an AIN to get a bit more hospital time and... I didn't get to drive my uni mogs as much. I was more a high ace driver and um, mm. <laughs> driving the CEO around Sydney, which was not as much fun. <laughs> so I was looking to leave my army reserve time and my OC at the time suggested I transfer over to officer and just combine nursing yeah. and army. And yeah, I took him up on that and putting all the paperwork and transferred over. I was like, what a genius idea. And that's how I sort of transferred to, yeah, nursing officer in my last year. And then you worked at Royal North Shore in intensive care for a couple of years just to sort of skill consolidate and work out how to be a registered nurse, I suppose. Um, How did you find that? Was there anything there that shocked or surprised you about clinical practice in those early days? Yeah, I guess... um, all clinicians go through that transition uh, as you're developing and when you first start independent practice. Hmm. Um, North Shore was good. By then I was living on the north side of Sydney. I, I had worked there as an assistant in nursing, uh, so I was pretty familiar with the hospital. And for the army officer nursing role, you need to complete your two years hmm. of graduate nursing. So I did... Um, part of their graduate program and then just went into ICU, which I'd always been interested in. I think one of the preceptors at the time had said, try to still do some general nursing. So I did that for sort of nine months, but still just enjoyed ICU and went into that. Um, Mainly cardiothoracics, North Shore still splits up their ICU. Um, I very much enjoyed the high turnover of cardiothoracic ICU, Mm. um, where they sort of pump people through after their surgeries and get them to the ward. The little bit I did with neuro, I found really sad and uh, a bit depressing. Um, It's an amazing unit there with beautiful people. Um, But at the time, and probably still now, I always always sort of found the cases uh, would affect me a lot and quite sad Mm. when you're looking at patients who probably have long-term poor outcomes. 
But at North Shore, you were very well supported as a new grad. We had really good support staff. Um, sometimes now I look at the staff in numbers and I think especially with COVID, everyone has been affected a lot. They've lost a lot of senior staff over all areas of health, I think. Mm, and it puts a lot of pressure on juniors. And I think I didn't really have to suffer from that. I think we, you know, we were mentored very well. We had a lot of support available. Um, and we had a really beautiful group that we worked with that made it um, a lot of fun and to so support you through those early transitions when you were dealing with difficult patient, patient situations. Hmm. Yeah, and then on first posting onto to HSB up in Brizzy, what did you think when you got to finally march into that first <laughs> full-time army? Yes, the... ARA at Inogra Barracks is a little bit different to my reserve <laughs> experience. Um, it was nice moving to the sunny state. I really enjoyed Brisbane. Mm -hmm. um, the hospital uh, was, it was good. The focus for the first year nursing officer was definitely on completing your courses. Yeah. Um, it's an officer heavy unit, which I guess was very different to where I'd come from. Mm. Um, and I definitely struggled a bit, I think, in my first role as an officer coming from a digger. Mm. Um, and I did get one of my first jobs uh, in between courses was to um, take some vehicles up to Cairns essentially to use up the fuel allocation for the year. <laughs> As in charge, thanks to my uni model. Nothing to do with nursing at all, um, but never mind. Yeah, there was there was definitely some OR tendencies that, that needed to be ironed out <laughs> after that trip. I think was the words that the OC had used at the end of the trip. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess um, you can relate to the diggers once you've been through Kapuki yourself too and you have you know what it's like a little bit. You can kind of... Yes, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I found we had a, um, a really variable group of nursing officers and, and um, allied health, mm. which was such a different environment to the hospital environment. I definitely struggled a little bit, I think, with the lack of clinical patient care. Yeah. Um, and my whole time in Brisbane, I sort of worked, um, I joined an agency and worked part-time mainly at Royal Brisbane, just occasionally in their ICU, mm. um, which is where I ended up going back to uh, when I did leave in Brisbane. I think because I had just completed my um, grad cert in critical care, I definitely found the transition to less clinical work a little bit challenging. Yeah, and that's probably um, one of the key yeah. reasons a lot of nursing officers leave the ADF after, you know, their initial rosa is up because they crave that frequent, intense clinical contact and you don't always yeah. get it and then when you do get it it's extreme <laughs> and it's you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's then there's a big break before you get another another chance to operate in an environment where your skills are being really tested and put to practice and then you're back behind a desk so it's I think it's a model they're working on trying to spend more time working clinically less time doing admin and you know <laughs> But it, yes, it's, I think um, it's a fine far balance. From perfect, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And how did you find yeah. those initial courses? You do your SSO course, you do some logistics uh, courses, and you do MARC or the Military Advanced Resus course. 
did you have a good time yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> i did did have a good time yeah. sso you know affectionately referred to as knife fork and spoon course yeah. by any gso in the army mm-hmm. um <laughs> yeah. it, it was it's definitely a bit of a crash course i felt fortunate that i had completed kapuka mm. um i think that gave you a really uh solid foundation yeah. So it was less of a steep learning curve, um, I think, than some people. Obviously, they're sort of covering the basics of um, military life and um, all your drill and weapons, as well as a bit of fitness. I must say at the time, it's funny, I ended up in Canberra at the time. Canberra in May was horrendous. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I did not enjoy that coming from Queensland. but then a couple of months down at Aubrey Wodonga doing the LOBC and Mark course, which you described as sort of, we sort of did them back to back. The School of Health down there runs the Mark course. That was uh, quite re- a really good course, actually. That was very different to anything I had done in the past. Um, and LOBC as well was a bit of a challenge, um, a bit more of a step up uh, from any of the military things I had done before. Mm. The Mark course, especially the scenario-based training and doing all the sim cases, that's really useful. And that was sort of, I'd done a little bit um, in my ICU time, but not to the extent that they did at the Mark course. So that was really interesting, yeah. And, you know, it's an army course. They had the boozer down there. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I love Mark for all the same reasons. Yeah, Yeah, it was great. Mascaz simulations, just getting to practice with the kit and uh, with all your colleagues. And I loved how they uh, integrated in with the doctors as well when they were down there doing their initial training. So we did a couple of sims with them on our one. That was awesome. Yeah. 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 Not the type of stuff you would have, um, well, I'd ever done in, civilian nursing yeah and it's a real skill step up for a, a lot of nurses too you know suturing plastering even those primary healthcare skills that you don't learn in a normal nursing degree and then yep you know obstetrics yep. pediatric emergencies and yeah and all the trauma stuff and leading a resource team intubating uh, chest tubes all that kind of stuff it's it's great yeah yeah um so then off you went to well, back up to Brizzy for a while, and in 2012, you got to deploy on Mentoring Task Force 5 with 3RIR to Afghanistan. Yeah, so I then, after my year at the hospital, went to 214 Yeah, and was the nursing officer at the RAP there. Um, at that time, they didn't have a dedicated MO mm. or medical officer, and that was a really interesting sort of both clinically and from a military aspect a very challenging year but i really enjoyed sort of the rap work yeah i enjoyed being part of the unit and the way it was set up then having the rap embedded in the unit allowed for everyone to sort of feel part of the team Mm -hmm. we had an excellent group of medics um, that we all became quite close and they really helped me through because that in itself was quite a big step, I thought, um, for a, a, quite a junior nursing officer yeah. to have to work in an RAP sort of without direct contact with that MO. And part of that role without the med officer was to then attend orders and um, be sort of an active member of all the um, planning to go field 
and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and so that was a really good transition year. And I think it was, it was sort of stemmed from that, that, uh, I was then, um, went to as part of three RIRs, part of MTF five, yeah. um, to Afghan the next year. I'd been sort of the reserve person the year before, which was good because I had done a little bit of the training and was good friends with one of the officers who did attend the year before. Um, and so the three R three RIR was a big move to Townsville to do all our pre-deployment training. Mm. Um, <laughs> and a very different unit to the CAV guys. And again, quite a step up, both I think physically from a clinical point of view, and then trying to manage that role of um, essentially preparing the battalion for deployment. Yeah. How did you find that lead up training? It was pretty extensive yeah. at that point because we'd been in country for quite a few years and they'd bolted a lot into that package, even for a nurse yeah. to know and do. So, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. The The lead up training was extremely comprehensive uh, and very useful. Um, as you said, we've been there a little while and we had the benefit of having um, very recent returned veterans uh, sort of provide some of the teaching and mm. mentoring. And I guess there was two aspects that we were juggling the whole time, um, preparing as part of the battalion and participating in all their uh, sort of CEXs and meeting their goalposts, mm -hmm. including the CO's fitness test. <laughs> um, but then the clinical side, which was um, our medics was uh, running more courses to train um, the combat first aiders and our um, specific medical training, which was run by CareFlight yeah. at the time, the primary survey series one and two. And that training was probably still the some of the best clinical training i have mm, attended same, same. um yeah it it was very comprehensive it focused a lot on not just direct uh teamwork and not well sorry not just clinical skills but your non-technical um skills mm. as well which again in the you know civilian clinical environment probably until you get a little bit more senior there's not a huge emphasis on, and there's also just not the exposure that you experience in the military, yeah. I think. And so from a clinical point of view, there was, um, again, a, a lot of simulations. Um, there was some really targeted teaching, um, which, to be honest, was probably more targeted at the doctors who had to make clinical decisions. And again, upskilling on your resource skills, your advanced life support, and a lot of trauma. But then the trauma side of things, how to manage mass care situations, how to play different roles in a team, and then just simulations that you just would have never thought of um, that they actually enacted was really mm. interesting, um, including um, their moulage kits were definitely the best I've seen so yeah. far. Um, and they, they put a lot of effort into making things as, as realistic and also a little bit stressful mm -hmm. as possible um to sort of test people in the moment yeah and everything from from doing night activities um and just sort of throwing in variables but then always um their debriefings always managed to i guess build people up rather than make people feel bad when things hadn't gone how you know how uh, we may have wanted yeah. them to and so i think for the like our health team 
I think that really uh, sort of bonded people, helped bring people together, um, and maybe made everyone feel more confident going away together yeah. as a team. So you're doing all that, you're doing mission readiness exercises with 3RAR, all the counter IED training, the CEO's fitness test, which sounded pretty epic at the time, and you're trying to train your combat first aiders, your CFAs, um, and get them ready to go as well. Yes, it was a yeah pretty hectic time. And, and it was in Townsville, which I just remember... I love the sunny state, but Townsville was a bit too hot. We were doing PT at like 4.30 in the morning. Yep. Um, you're forever feeling uh, exhausted and a bit sweaty. Um, and uh, just even just the physical adjustment to that uh, can be quite a bit. And so what were your first thoughts when you finally got over there and, and landed in TK? Um, I... I do have a specific memory of walking off the plane. I think there's so much anticipation. I had, mm. like, in hindsight, I was not really prepared despite, you know, the military's best attempt at preparing us. And I just remember being like, it was spectacular. It just looked beautiful. Uh, arriving was sort of like we arrived just after dawn. Um, mm. And, yeah, stunning scenery. I found TK was just sort of not what I had imagined. Um, <laughs> we were part of the, obviously, the resus and the um, team, which was predominantly run by the US. Um, mm. And I guess we hadn't really, people had told us about that, but it's hard to imagine. So some of it was a bit more... Um, relaxed than I thought in that the US especially makes time to try and um, have some downtime when they can and make the most of it and then I guess some of it was not what I expected um, being my first overseas trip the base was like quite extensive um, pretty simple and uh, like very well protected we been the nursing officer and the role of MTF Five, uh, my role was just to stay in TK, um, other than some Turk escorts. The facilities we had there were pretty basic, but um, you could still do a lot of stuff. We had pathology um, on site that they could do some simple things. The resource base themselves uh, were re like pretty well equipped, um, and even the two theatres that I hadn't imagined, I think, beforehand, because it's not really how we were running things um, in country at the time, um, when we would normally have, you know, either the hospital set up with the theatres or just a resus bay. So you've got an orthopaedic surgeon, general surgeon, basic path, um, very simple mobile x-ray and some ICU holding, and that's about it, making up the role to echo at that point yes that's correct yeah and anything further ct scans anyone who needed more than damage control surgery would then be moved onwards yes so i guess our team we didn't discuss that was made up of our doctor uh who was a gp um myself as a nurse a womed sergeant medic um and then uh corporal and, and we had multiple digger medics who rotated in and out, but mainly together the whole time. Um, 
whereas they had their surgeons who were there most of the time um, and they obviously were relieved at a certain point but they also had um, the physician assistants who is a much bigger role in the US and who could also run anesthetics mm. so that they could um, run multiple theatres at once. Yep. And and we did have to explore it, which again was different to anything I had um, practised before. Um, if we had two theatre cases going and the other two resus bays going and when you had a mass cas event, um, you just sort of stepped down to the next highest acuity bed, mm. um, which was essentially in the wards. Yeah. Um, with monitoring with whoever you had to, to look after the next patient. Yeah. yeah. And when you guys were there, you were like the primary first on call team for a couple of days of the week and then you backed up the Americans on the other days. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we were on call the whole time for any Australian casualty. Mm -hmm. um, and then two days a week we would be on call for anyone at yeah. the resource bay. Yeah, so important. And the Americans were the... Yeah, they were the lead the rest of the days, yeah. It's so important you're there for an Australian face. You know, you know a lot of the guys in the task group. Uh, you might know some of the SF guys that come through, but I think just the fact that you have the same accent and you can get their sense of humour, it goes a long <laughs> way. <laughs> and, yes. and, yeah, just to be there for them. Um, yeah. And you're doing a lot of primary health care as well. When you're not in, in a resource bay, you're seeing contractors because there's thousands of them coming in and out. You're seeing, Well, maybe not thousands, maybe hundreds. Um, you're seeing a lot of soldiers as well, just with coughs, colds, sore holes, that kind of jobs. Yeah, yeah so that role, it, that did keep us quite busy. So we would run essentially the RAP service every single day. And that was for everyone on base, so all the coalition, um, yeah, which included um, we had some Slovaks there, the US, Singaporeans, and then the civilians, civilian contractors. Um, yeah. Because the US actually, working with them was very interesting. They, they don't um, sort of manage primary health care like we do. Their medical system is quite different. Their medical assessments for the military are quite different and it was interesting because a lot of the US soldiers actually were overseas with problems that our guys never would have deployed with. Mm. Um, I think our military is very good at, usually they try to be very good at um, uh, providing excellent like early healthcare, looking after soldiers and also managing chronic illnesses or mainly musculoskeletal problems. Whereas the amount of US soldiers we saw who had had certain things identified and then they just sort of got sent overseas with nothing sorted and then mm. obviously um, uh, overseas deployment was not going to help their damaged knee and no. it only sort of got worse. So some of that was just trying to manage that um, within the realms of their job. I think one of the – and then, yeah, the usual everyone um, – gets a little bit unwell so there's a lot of the usual musculoskeletal problems and then the generalized um small um daily ailments that people might develop one of the biggest um you can sort of laugh about it now but it was not funny at the time um i guess more of a primary healthcare point of view than a resus was the worst case of food poisoning i have ever seen mm. when some locals uh, had cooked some goat 
which had um, they actually had a shop on base, and they'd cooked this goat that had uh, been sort of killed and then not cooked for a couple of days. And I understand the meat smelt very good, and they'd um, handed it out to people on the way to the mess at around lunchtime on one day. Mm-hmm. And we had, I felt so sorry for everyone. We had over 40 people in total who had horrendous food poisoning. Oh, um, at the, we had, I felt like we were in Vietnam. There was stretches lying in the RAP um, yeah. just <laughs> in because we didn't have enough beds. And then I was going mm-hmm. to people's rooms and popping cannulas in and providing fluids for those who were um, slightly less bad. Yeah, the the gastro yeah. upset of this, you know, sort of 24 to 48 hour intense gastro. Um, mm-hmm. These poor guys with these very high fevers that we were just trying to give fluids to and some Panadol um, and yeah. keep them hydrated till they got better. And some, some of them were like, we only had a bite of someone else's. Like, yeah, it's pretty mm. bad. So those sort of things still happen, um, which is a bit different to the the trauma which i think is what probably everyone associates with on a you know overseas deployment but it's still all just the normal day-to-day normal stuff yeah Yeah. and you know a lot of those contractors and that as you said like the americans they might have not have the same screening as us so they've got people in country that are diabetic that have chest pain that you know yeah all these chronic health conditions infectious diseases lots of tv you know it's just stuff that's yeah, it takes up your time, that's for sure. Locals that took um, too much pre-workout. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, who aren't familiar with it and I think got it off either our guys or the US. Um, they got chest pain. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Inter- interesting things that you just sort of don't don't necessarily consider. And and sore penises. <laughs> they're, they're all the time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a constant stream, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, oh, in terms of trauma, you guys were pretty damn busy though as well. I've um, just had a look at your at the trauma diary. Most rotations kept a record of kind of the casualties they were seeing, and um, yeah, just a very quick kind of rundown. You know, gunshot wounds, IEDs, snake bite, helicopter crashes, frag. Um, everyone from Afghan National Army, local nationals, Australians, US, Taliban, contractors, some pretty epic injuries, IEDs or vehicle-borne IEDs, facial burns, broken teeth, fractured femur, bilateral amputees, um, lacerated livers, you've got entry wounds, Um, in the back, out the front, from gunshot wounds, through and throughs, spinal injuries, lots there. Um, What sort of stands out to you now? Like that's a lot of trauma to be seeing and and it's trauma that you're seeing sometimes with people you know and in a civilian setting you rarely treat someone you know and if you do it's probably not likely that serious but the medics on the ground know these uh, knew a lot of these soldiers really intimately and um yeah i guess how did you feel and and what stands out in those cases for you yeah so that it was a lot of trauma um 
we were the last mentoring task force um, and they, they did it, had a very busy trip in the summer. Mm. I think um, it was something that I remember I tried to prepare our medics for without really having any understanding or concept of it myself um, for the fact, as you pointed out, I think the biggest difference is you're tr often treating people you might know and that's really hard mm. to get your head around. And I did some of our medics before I went and I also had really close friends who I think you have to have a little think about before you go overseas how you're going to cope if they come in because you might be the only person there available to try and treat them and especially the medics who are dealing with it out at the patrol bases. So I think I we definitely, I know myself, I think I had a bit of trauma fatigue by the end of the trip. Um, Mm. You know, there's as the I think it's like any clinician, you become a bit accustomed to a little bit of dissociation of trauma um, at some point. Um, you know, in your day to day job, everybody sees trauma, and then there'll always be the cases that stick with you, and that's usually cases that you can identify with for some reason. And whether that's because it reminds mm. you of someone, um, you know, people that have children of a similar age. Um, or, you know, a relative similar or it reminds you of a situation or just how horrific the trauma is. I think the, I mean, the Australian trauma was one thing that was um, always awful and then just the number and um, acuity of some of the Afghan national trauma um, was really disappointing and, like, uh, confronting. And I think something I found hard at the start was just knowing for those people that they're not, um, like, what's going to happen to them, um, especially when you see see some of it that you're like, you're just doing damage control. We can fix what we can do there. But then after that, mm -hmm. you know, it's not the type of stuff that we have in Australia where you know that they're going to get, you know, ongoing repeat surgery, um, really good rehab. Yeah. They'll be very well supported. Um you know they're going home, no physio, no, like, burns, rehab, no possibly no neurosurgery and those sort of things that they may need down the track. It's hard, isn't it? it? Very much so. Yeah. Um, mm. So we saw children. That was quite confronting, um, something I hadn't really been exposed to. There was, I guess, a couple of the cases that stick out in my mind was, um, A, the children who were often like you would expect in a third world country, pretty small for their age. Um, mm. And if when they had been exposed or, you know, caught up in some sort of a trauma, sometimes the way we got around it is you just treated who came through the door because there was always a question of whether we were allowed to treat or not. And they were very much like if they landed with us, we just um, managed them. Um, but it, yeah, it, yeah, but it was then beyond that, I guess, where we were a bit limited. Hmm. Um, and there was a little two-year-old that had come in with a partial foot amputation, had an open abdominal wound, and at the time, I just remember someone first put an IO in um, in their upper arm, and they were so tiny, like used the small one, and it actually went out the other side. It was just. Oh, wow. It was just horrific and that little 
little girl, we just, she was one that you're like, I don't know that like her, her life will just be, you know, never the same. And there's not much you can do. You can save her life, but the type of care that she needs, you know, with that amputation at that age, I don't think was necessarily available. Yeah. Yeah, It's just, um, a bit distressing. There was definitely, it sort of became a foot sniper Friday, what we would refer to people who would clean in their own weapons. And there was a lot of creative stories around what happened, have self-inflicted gunshot wounds to their foot, Um, which is amazing that you can shoot your foot and often still walk and not do too much damage and give them a can boot and off they go. Um, one guy this isn't this is afghan yeah that's correct yep afghan army um oh man one guy i still remember he had a prosthetic leg on and then he'd shot the other foot Uh, (laughs) we were just like can't believe this um but uh i think what we sort of established from talking to some of the especially our interpreter and the ana you know their conditions were not great their motivation for being in the army is literally to get paid um Mm. and they often wouldn't get leave they didn't like what they were doing and you know it's just it's a very humbling experience because you know you think you have a bad day at work worst case you can call in a sickie you know you've got a sore throat whatever upset tummy over there the only way they could get out of things was to be physically unable uh like like incapable of going to work so you know, just uh, mm. making up stories about they were cleaning their weapons or their friend was cleaning their weapon and it discharged. Self-inflicted yep. gunshot wound is pretty extreme way to get out of going to a, yep. to work. But I guess they're worried about that work killing them and they're very tribal, aren't they? So their investment in a province that's not their own may not be enough motivation to want to go and do that job and seek out the talent. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. It's pretty heavy though yeah yeah mm. tell me about the ied at the cemetery oh it's yes really fairly the ied at the cemetery yeah. that was an event that occurred it was towards the end of our trip and and so by then i guess perhaps that feeling of futility and what are we doing here was sort of starting to weigh pretty heavily uh, and it was during ramadan so they sort of at the end of Ramadan when they do Eid and part of that is sort of celebrating and remembering people who had died and we had a five casualties brought in and the story was quite horrific that it just stuck with me um there was an uncle who had essentially taken his nieces and nephews to the cemetery to visit um the grave site of these kids dad which was his brother and he'd been um fairly involved in education um and he'd been killed uh pretty recently in the last couple of months um and Mm. this uncle who was against um sort of progression and education in afghanistan um had actually set up uh this ied so all of the five children he'd left the car and and um detonated it so they had all had a variety of injuries. Um, two went straight oh, into wow. surgery, which to be honest, I can't actually recall. They were um, in like quite uh, unstable. 
And like we discussed that sort of step down approach, um, depending how many casualties you had at once, depending who managed what. And at the time um, I had a patient who he was about 15 or 16, a teenager, and he just had all um, this, these shards in his eyes that we were just plucking out. We literally topicalized with some local and just taking out literally with mm. forceps. But um, I mean, I was certainly at the time not sort of any sort of special training in managing that sort of injuries. Mm. But it was just that it was so um, such an obvious injury and obviously not ideal that you're just like how is he ever going to recover from this if you're plucking out bits of metal from his eye um with forceps that you're like this is just um like it's just horrendous to try and get your head around that this has happened from a family member um and i think Mm -hmm. the youngest in that group was two or three um like quite young and yeah it was just um it was very confronting uh to to sort of be like, this is the mechanism of what goes on over here. Mm. Yeah. The brutality and how barbaric the enemy were, I think a lot of people don't understand yeah. Yeah. back in Australia, like what we were facing and seeing. Yes. There. Yeah. It's just next level. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. And in august it was a pretty horrific month for australia august of 2012 um you got a call to recess for curtis mcgrath then and he's now obviously a very well-known paralympian and has achieved a lot uh, in his his career but just tell me about what that was like uh, seeing curtis after he hit an ied yeah curtis um that was quite horrific like we'd mentioned any australian casualty is horrific he was by far uh, obviously with the amputations one of the worst he was actually a combat first aider um really Mm. you know amazing soldier and has gone on to do amazing things um despite his horrific injuries it was it's nearly surreal when you try and recall these events that happened i think so we had yeah. the system when you were on call. Um, I had a, a phone which uh, you could discuss, um, especially there was a nurse over with SOTG that we could talk with, and then you had a pager which was activated um, when they sent a nine line of activase mm. to just sort of stand up the recess, which is um, we got the pager um, for Curdo, and so everyone was in recess ready to go. And I think... By the time you'd done a few of those, you weren't, you never quite knew what to expect. You always got some information a bit variable depending on the communications um, and what was happening at the time. But you just always had this sense of dread, I think, when you knew it was an Australian coming in. Um, hmm. Curtis was quite amazing. Um, he'd had tourniquets applied. Um, I understand he'd actually, I think, tried to, like, done the start of it himself um and he was still conscious and talking and you know considering actually quite upbeat which is just you know a testament to his what ca- a legend, testament I mean. to his character exactly yeah. just had both your legs blown off and yeah you're rendering first aid to yourself yeah. <laughs> and yeah 
just yeah. incredible. And he'd had really good uh, basic first aid applied. And in hindsight, he, he got really good care because at the time our, the surgeons were available. Um, so we literally, um, he was sort of anaesthetised quite quickly um, and taken into the main surgical bay where the orthopaedic surgeons could do the damage control surgery and um, do the amputations before he was then evac'd out. Mm. And at the time, I remember the discussion afterwards was that he was quite fortunate that he got very effective early care and otherwise young, fit and well. But there was also six American amputees waiting at Kandahar at the tertiary hospital where he was evac to, that he would have just sat and waited for that surgery had he been taken straight back. Um, and that mm -hmm. was just like also very shocking for me because I think it's horrible what we had to experience and all of the Australian ca casualties, um, you know, have suffered a lot and it's awful. But to know the, um, I guess, magnitude of what the US were going through at the same time, and we had these surgeons who were operating mm -hmm. on our guys, thank goodness. Um, but knowing that at the same time they um, could communicate with the, the guys back at Kandahar and be like, this is how many US soldiers we have from all over the place who have similar horrific injuries. Um, like that was just mind boggling to me because mm. this was like the worst trauma we had seen aside from our um, deaths. And and that was just nearly not commonplace, but they were just so accustomed to it. And I've, I've never really been able to reconcile that in my head either. Um, hmm. Yeah, and I think everyone involved in his care did an amazing job. The medics were quite close to him and had to deal with that, and they all worked really well. Um, but it was, it was really horrific to actually see that initial surgery and be part of it. But I guess like a lot of what we were doing over there, you just tried to tell yourself that you were doing the best thing possible for the person involved. And it's it's just so heartwarming to see how well he's done after after everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And only, well, really, a week later, 30th of August, it's a pretty dark day for the Australian Army. Yeah. You were on shift that day. You didn't have a doc with you. He was outside the wire at the time. Yes, yeah, so the 29th, 30th of August was uh, quite horrific. There'd been a little bit of a change in the, um, in the way that the uh, sort of mentoring was happening, where the patrols were happening outside the wire. Um, our doc and sergeant medic had actually been moved forward. Um, to try and meet some of the resource guidelines um, for time, sort of your time limits mm. to care. Yep, golden hour and, yep. And so we received a page and it's actually quite um, horrific. Again, you don't really know what you're going to, to see. And when you get the calls in the middle of the night, um, you know, the resource bay isn't opened. You have to go unlock this. Um, everyone was ready very quickly. We were very used to that. Um, but there was news of this mm. green on blue attack in which one of our medics was also involved. And 
the casualties were brought back to the recess and we'd had there's limited information initially um and everyone i just remember it was you know middle like early hours of the morning was there's just a lot of movement around base because a lot of people had been uh woken up and activated and uh the as the casualties came in we were trying to assess um like what was going on as well as supporting i just remember being horrified because one of our medics had actually been involved quite closely uh like in the incident um and we didn't have again the us came straight away when we had to um organize this um but there was sort of limited support i guess so the the two things that we were trying to manage was the casualty care but also what was going on because we then had everyone asking like what's what is the prognosis what is going on they need to organize information to send back mm. home and that was something i sort of wasn't as familiar with and yeah it was it was pretty overwhelming Mm, that thirst for information from yes, the top yeah, and that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, three Australians shot and killed by a rogue member of the Afghan National Army. That sort of changed everything for us. Yeah, that really did. And so the three that were killed and then two that were severely injured that came straight back and then obviously there was other people involved as well. Um, yeah. But the initial focus was on the management of the the injured as well as um, managing those casualties. Yeah. And how was that afterwards being, you know, that green and blue was horrific, but, you know, we were working fairly closely with the ANA and a lot of stuff changed then, you know, a lot of separation occurred and... Um, guardian angels in the recess phase and all more careful well, we're always careful but more careful metal detectors over people and and really thoroughly like stripping them naked before they got in those doors to recess just to make sure they didn't have any explosives on them and uh what what changed for you in the aftermath with in the of that increased threat where you you couldn't really trust the people we were there to mentor help rebuild their country it yeah was, i yeah. think i think it was really difficult i really admire all the guys out at the patrol bases um and our medics who were dealing with that a little bit more closely mm. um i guess in some ways we were a little bit protected from the from that immediately um because our direct involvement was usually in relation to meetings or managing people with one of their clinicians, which we'd sort of stopped by that point, um, if we would actually go and provide them care. Mm. So as far as, as you said, as far as actually giving them care and coming into the recess bay, I don't know if it was being naive or, or just an acceptance of the situation we were in, um, but there was definitely an increase in checking for any weapons or explosives and removing clothes, but, it wasn't necessarily like mm. that was sort of all done outside of the resource bay. Um, people were checked before they were transferred. Yeah. Like there'd already been a couple of steps before they would get back to the resource bay that it was probably less of a direct mm. concern for myself. It was more managing the fact that um, our teams were still working so closely with these people 
uh, and how they could manage that, um, you know, wanting to help people, wanting to trust people and yet having that happen um, where someone has just, mm. you know, you've been supporting them and then everyone's sitting around literally hanging out together playing cards and they um, decide to shoot to shoot these, you know, innocent people. Yep. Yeah, shoot and mm. kill. Mm. And that day, 30th of August 2012, there was a helicopter crash as well and special operations t- um, operators were killed. Yes, so, I mean, the night honestly already felt like a nightmare. Um, we'd all been a little bit shell-shocked. Um, yeah. Once all the immediate um, things had been taken care of, following the green on blue, um, I can't even recall how long, but we'd sent, I'd sent everyone back to bed and we'd all just gone back because we'd done everything we could do. And people were just, we'd had a small debrief mm. straight after the event, um, but everyone was like really shocked. Um, and then we got another page and you were honestly like, this can't be happening. And there'd been a helicopter accident yeah. um, with further casualties, which had to be managed. And I think ev- everyone was literally like shell shock, like this just can't be happening. And so the, you know, the resus was stood up again um, and the resus drills were undertaken. Um, and yeah, it was just an extraordinarily sobering um, like night that you like never want to repeat in your life. It was, um, yeah, really quite traumatic, I think, for everyone yeah. involved. Terrific. Where you're, you sort of just go onto autopilot to do what needs to be done. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a bit hard to explain, actually. I think. Yeah, no real time to process or grieve. You're just on the job still. You kind of yeah, you're in a war zone and you're yeah. still receiving casualties and yeah, just horrific. Really sad loss. How did you find um, working in the Afghan culture? We both had the same interpreter over there, Ali. Yeah. He was a pretty cool guy. Um, How did you find working with him? Yeah, so Ali was great fun. He was he was a really good interpreter to work with. I found the environment really different and the people we worked with on an individual basis, it was quite variable. Um, so Ali was very mm. experienced, uh, really good languages, um, and quite a character, as you said, he, we actually still in contact. He's now over in Perth, which is great for him. He really worked towards, uh, I think bringing the team up and was really, you know, more than just providing interpretation skills was like a really active member of the team. He, <laughs> he used to, um, really liked playing indoor cricket with the guys. He would set little uh, language tests when we would try and get him to teach us stuff. So we'd do little weekly language tests. Um, but he was also like genuinely caring, um, I think, for both the locals and us. Um, so he was really empathetic, which was not the same with all the locals you would deal with or the ANA. I guess we had um, initially yeah. we had a little bit to do with some of their doctors um, who, you know, been a mentoring task force. They were, uh, you know, variable levels of training, I guess, 
and one of the ones I remember who was actually really amazing he had to leave because I think they decided he'd performed so well that he could go train to be a pilot which was actually a great <laughs> loss to them yeah. um, because he was he was amazing um, we definitely dealt mm. a lot with people who had perhaps received some care elsewhere in the community and it was just forever like very eye-opening and um, surprising I remember some people, they would come in with this bag of random medication that they'd received from someone um, with no idea of how to take it. Some people just had like really non-specific abdo pain and they were taking such a concoction of medication. Sometimes they were taking um, powdered drugs that were meant to be diluted and given IV and they were just eating them um, <laughs> because they didn't really have any instructions on what they were meant to be doing. Yeah, so there's... The things that you come across, I think, doing any sort of practice in the third world is um, interesting. It's also a testament to how resilient and yeah. strong the people are. Um, you would see chronic illnesses that you just don't see in Australia generally, perhaps a bit more outback where you see a little bit more. But even the things like abscesses that hadn't been looked after or drained that were just... Um, so large that you know no one in australia would usually let it get that big but they just didn't have have health care to to um to help them yeah to deal with it sorry their understanding i guess of health is just so far removed from what we're used to um but also communicating pain that was one big thing that i just found there's just this acceptance of pain and suffering that we don't have so i think that was mm. part of the reason we would see people really late sometimes with chronic illnesses even if we weren't meant to see them but you know they sometimes end up in the rap and we would just manage them because they were just you know very stoic and they just get on with things yeah mm. yeah you got some good advice you said from a u.s doctor at the start of your rotation just about working with that medical rules of eligibility and with what you had there in TK? Yeah. Um, so one of the, I think that was right at the start when we, we'd we had a little chat about mainly some of the locals that you were treating and then you had that feeling of futility and um, not really being able to do enough. Uh, and he was... I think really understanding they, you know, it's admirable. They do sort of back-to-back -back rotations, much longer rotations than we do. And they, he sort of just said, you've just got to focus on the fact that anything we're doing is better than what they've got. And it's sort of like that focus on the positive. And so regardless of what happens, we're doing a net good here. And we just can't let what happens in the future, like let that sort of cloud our judgment. And I guess that was nice, like you needed something to rationalise nearly your purpose being there because you sort of felt like a lot of it was a bit of band-aid practice, not for our guys, obviously, but the predominant um, care you were providing to other people. It just felt like perhaps, you know, it wasn't it wasn't going to be good enough in the long run. And that mm. was, that was, I found that quite challenging at the start. Yeah. Yeah. Moral, ethical, compass. 100% takes a hit there where you, yeah. Yes. You just want yeah, to, sort of, yeah, you want to see things doing? through. Yeah. yeah. What are we doing? Yeah. 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 Do you think your 
experiences really hardened you? I think, yeah, to a certain extent, I think anyone that has deployed, doesn't probably matter what role you're in, um, have seen some hardship that you just can't experience in a first world country um, or hopefully don't experience. I think it definitely made me feel a little bit of anger. Um, I was pretty angry, I think, when I came back, like a lot of people. Yeah. It, it, it's hard when you felt that um, overall, like when you see those instances of, you know, those five casualties where they've just been, you know, set up to die essentially by their uncle. But it's hard mm. to understand that and hard to understand how humanity can act like that when you see it firsthand. And I think you sort of develop this, you know, you're a little bit over everything and then when you come back, you sort of struggle with people's, you know, we loosely use the term first world problems and that's, yeah. I think, very real and it's always highlighted, I think, uh, when people come back from overseas because you're just so used to seeing so much suffering that's not normal. Mm. But it, it, it has to be normalised over there, otherwise you can't deal with it. Um, and someone's complaining about a cold freaking coffee or... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, just, yeah. Like, it's it just like, what? <laughs> doesn't matter, yeah. like can you suck it up yeah mm. um yeah. so i think that's that's always a little bit tricky to deal with um and i think you have to become a little bit hardened to to sort of not break down and to just keep getting up and going and doing stuff every single day um mm. yeah i still remember there was times even cleaning the morgue that was just one of these things that where we'd had the bodies um stuff that you like you never think you'd just have to go do um, yeah. And you're like, that's not nice. Um, and not, yeah, maybe not where you, what you imagined you'd be doing. And I think you just, people develop their own ways of coping, but I think, uh, and some of that is to just um, try and focus on the positives that you can, can change. Um, uh, but also at some point you sort of have to become a little bit less caring. Hmm. So you don't burn out entirely. Yes. Yeah. 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 And how did you feel coming home? Yeah, coming home was obviously there's a lot of excitement and anticipation. Um, we came home just before in December, just before Christmas. Um, it was, again, quite surreal um, what you've just been through. The couple of days that you had at AMAB, um, that was interesting. I remember... Uh, you know, they're trying to do this staged exit from country. Um, and you had a couple of hours in in town initially on this bus that I just remember was awful. I hated it. The shops were too, there was too much noise, like way too much yeah. sensory overload. Everything was so clean and too bright, um, too busy. It was all just a bit too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, coming home was quite surreal. Um, I remember the plane had sort of done all the cities and then come back to Brisbane and obviously all your family uh, met you at the airport, which was amazing. Um, and it was just, it was just bizarre, mm -hmm. like lovely to be home on home soil. The March Out Parade was really humbling seeing everyone back at base and Curtis attended, but it was also, you know, really sad in that obviously not everyone we had deployed with came home with us. Um, and I guess that really hit home 
perhaps when you're overseas, you just get this mentality of you just have to keep going. And then once you're home, you no longer have to keep going. You can sort of stop and it all sort of hits you a little bit about what had happened. Yeah, so I think it was was pretty surreal, you know, great to be home. But uh, I definitely, I think everyone does. It would be um, odd if you didn't find it a little bit challenging. Um, getting back to your normal routine and again trying to you want to go do the things you used to do but it's not the same all the time and um, all those little things dealing with people who it's like their life didn't change as much as yours in the last six months Um, Hmm. and trying to find that balance again of empathy for what they're going through when you're just like none of this actually matters yeah absolutely you're just enjoying the green grass under your exactly <laughs> i specifically yeah. remember as well as all I... the shit bits the, the yeah the, the good bits yeah 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 that's <laughs> yeah. right so after you had a bit of leave and that what were your thoughts you wanted to stay in the army i know you went to png a couple of years later didn't you yeah the following year actually um i think yeah i i'd had mixed feelings i think i'd been sort of feeling about um, thinking about getting out um, uh, but then I was sort of penciled in for the trip so I I stayed for that but then when I was overseas definitely I think I was sort of questioning what I was going to continue doing you know like we talked about I sort of ended up doing full-time nursing in the army because of the suggestion of my OC which had been really good but I think I wasn't feeling super fulfilled um there was a lot of restructure happening in army at the time as well. I'd really enjoyed the RAP work at 2.14, but that was all changing with the hubbing mm. of the health assets and the centralization where then health assets were um, yeah. sent out as required to units, which, you know, from a resource point of view was, I guess, more economical management of resources um, and personnel, but doesn't provide the people on the ground that connection and feeling like you're part of a unit um, getting to know people and that's quite isolating I think Um, doesn't matter what level you are for medics or nurses Mm. or doctors I think just getting shipped out and often multiple times a year to different field events trying to build rapport with people trying to understand what's going on um, and not quite feeling completely part of the team is a bit exhausting and it's hard for the troops too, isn't it? It's hard for the troops to not know their healthcare providers, their nurse, their doc, their medics. Yeah, 100%. And feel comfortable to come to you with mental health, say, problems or with their sore penis <laughs> or whatever it is that's bothering them. You know, they don't know you. It, it, it takes a lot away. Yeah. Um, I loved my time in a battalion. Yeah, just knowing the guys and them slowly building trust with me and yeah. exactly and um mm. like you said they're young people they often haven't had to deal with medical people very much and then stuff happens yeah. and you do you need them to be open and honest and hopefully timely in coming to you and yeah i don't blame them i wouldn't have wanted to be in some of their situations um mm. yeah so i i'd sort of i think that whole fatigue and what am i doing type feeling was ongoing um and I still sort of wanted to get out, but I received a lot of advice at the time to stay in, to not get out straight after a trip, all those sort of things. So I went back to the hospital. Yeah. That was my posting schedule, which, um, to be honest, after I'd really enjoyed my 
first time there was a bit deflating after everything I'd done. It mm. just felt um, maybe a little bit stagnant. Um, but a really good group of people there. And I was given the opportunity to go to WeWAC to support um, that activity over in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. Which was a, a really nice team. We were obviously supporting the training activities where that's sort of the yearly cycle that they do to do some training activities. Um, and as a medical group, it was different to um, go back to the hospital, uh, work as part of the role too, and sort of set all of that up, which is a bit different to what we've been doing from an RAP point of view when I'd been uh, with both 214 and 3RR. Uh, and we did get to do some MedCap activities, which was sort of going out to the communities on the chopper, working with the, um, the locals. Um, we had people liaise really closely with the sort of chief of the community there. And again, that was a very humbling experience. Um, uh, you just remember like, again, the, the ailments you see, but then also it's quite heartwarming. I remember like these kids would just, you know, some of them had, you know, vision problems that they'd been born with. Some of them had, um, everyone was, you know, probably had worms. We handed out a lot of multivitamins and worming tablets. Mm. Uh, but, you know, knee problems, swollen knees. Um, some of them had, you know, had breaks that had just never been, you know, set properly. So then they'd healed a little bit disfigured. But they would just be running around laughing. They were so excited to see us. They wanted to play games and play soccer. Uh, so it's really heartwarming. Um, but also, again, very humbling. They had, there was a lot of fungal infections in the communities. And we mm. sort of, I remember they got to the bottom of it. Like there's literally this one bathtub in the centre of all the huts that they sort of shared. They were like just the simple things like managing to clean that. Um, to try and get on top of this, you know, just widespread fungal skin infections. That was through the community. Um, just, you know, we just don't have to consider these things. That That is what these guys yeah. live with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, but I guess we also were involved in, like, a little bit of health advice slash mentorship at the school. And we, you know, ran some fun little workshops for them. And the students were also keen and happy. And they put on, you know, their dance performances for us. So it was, you know, it was quite a, like, heartwarming trip for us, I think. Um, certainly yeah. not trauma like we saw before. We did some operations on the locals. But I think part of that was it was really useful for them. Things like um, perianal abscesses and... Um, ailments like that but not trauma that we dealt with in the past yeah 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 great to be able to get involved with that sort of humanitarian work and and right in our back door yeah with the beautiful people in png yeah. yeah yeah and then um why did you sort of decide to transition out of the full-time army back to the reserve you sort of touched on it you wanted that clinical ongoing exposure and yeah, you sort of made that call. Yeah, I think I, I'd i been contemplating considering trans or applying for medicine for a little while. And I do think perhaps working with um, some of the people overseas in Afghan 
had consolidated that. It's nice in the military that like you work um, as a nurse quite closely with the the doctors. I hadn't really felt in my you know junior years at North Shore I'd never really aspired to be any of those burnt out doctors, um, <laughs> which is sort of <laughs> what I've ended up. Um, yeah and i think i'd had a chat with like our senior medical officer and i think i was just struggling a bit to see where i was going to head with army i'd as i said i really enjoyed the rap work and people management from that side of um that point of view but wasn't super interested in that long term um well it wasn't really an option i guess mm. that had been taken away i wanted to be more clinical and i guess in army yeah. you're then just looking at you know doing doing your promotion courses getting promoted um and it's one of those things that i think the higher you get then you get less clinical and at the time yes. there wasn't a whole lot of scope to increase the amount of clinical time we got um the memorandum of understanding was usually about two weeks a year um and so mm. i had not enough. not enough at all and when i came back i taken up doing those weekends at Royal Brisbane again to sort of keep up my ICU skills and I think part of that was just a bit of a fatigue um, you know working full-time still doing field exercises going overseas and still trying to keep up my clinical and so I just sort of made the decision that I wanted to go out I still really enjoyed army and what it could offer and its variety but I just didn't see where I was going with that uh, long term, mm. just not quite what I was after. So I transitioned out. I um, was fortunate enough to get a job at Royal Brisbane while I was doing my GAMSAT. The first time I sat GAMSAT, I was then outfield for the entire med application time. So I sort of hadn't planned that very well. I remember going to the phone tree to try and organize. I just I had no internet. I couldn't really apply. Oh, man. Wasn't really aware of it. But that's okay. It was a good practice run. Second time round, I was a bit more organised and made sure I had some internet to get my applications in on time. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's important. <laughs> and, yeah, so I, I chose to stay in reserve uh, while I sort of transitioned to med, yeah. And you studied then at the University of Notre Dame in Sydney. What was that transition like to be a doc? Yes, um, so Notre Dame is a pretty small uni in Sydney, very different uni experience to my first time round. The workload was pretty intense and I guess I'd also been out of that study mode for a few years. And I found going back as a full-time student extremely challenging. Um, I, I had to apply myself a lot more and I sort of missed, you know, the things I really loved about army life is the variety and even clinical life, you know, the people, getting to do regular exercise, regular activities. And so we had a lot of fun at uni, a lot of good people, but there was a big focus on like long days of lectures and a lot of study, which was a challenge <laughs> for me at the time, but really enjoyable. I definitely had a few moments. Um, it's not uncommon. There, there was quite a few nurses in my year who decided to become doctors. There was a lot of physios a friend who studied medicine first because it was a post-grad course. So a lot of variety of people um, with like different backgrounds and then a large amount of people who had sort of done med science and then got into med, which I still think either pharmacy or med science is probably the most useful background from my understanding. <laughs> my science is definitely lacking. Yeah. I had to put in a few hard yards. 
and I had a real appreciation, I think, for, I think it's that understanding that there's always more to learn. I definitely mm. had a few moments that I would then discuss with my nursing friends where I was like, oh, my goodness, we just used to give this medication. I had no idea <laughs> about these things. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah, that level of knowledge. Yeah, the yeah. depth of understanding that I was like, wow. was yeah, sort of superficial. I think having had a nursing background has really helped me, you know, as a, a JMO and then even now in anaesthetics. It was funny when I left Royal Brisbane and I had um, one of my last shifts and I told one of the consultants there that I was starting med. And he'd said at the time, you'll probably end up in ICU or anaesthetics. And at the time I was like, no, no, I definitely want to do GP anaesthetics. Like I want to do rural work. And he's like, no, ICU mm -hmm. nurses end up in ICU or anaesthetics. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> he hit the nail on the head. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, I, re I really enjoyed it. I found it um, really challenging. I found the hours um, as a JMO like nothing I'd had to do before. And I sort of realised for someone who'd worked in health, I'd really underappreciated um, <laughs> what they were going through. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, and I think I was probably, I was definitely closer to, the doctor friends I'd made in army then um, in hospital, probably just by nature of I'd moved a lot and sort of then at Royal Brisbane only worked like part-time casual until that last year. And they obviously move around a lot as well. So I definitely did not appreciate just the hours and then the ongoing study post um, graduation of med uh, that's sort of required um, for your career. I think the doctors that I was friends with had hit it really well. <laughs> yeah, it's epic, I reckon, what we expect of our junior doctors, really, for the first decade after med school, the hours yeah. of study, like yeah. how you come out of that not being completely shattered physically and or emotionally. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot, yeah. yeah. So you're um, currently part of the Australian New Zealand College of Anaesthetist Training Program. Congratulations. Awesome. Thank you. Yes, yeah. yeah. So that's been a bit of a journey. Um, I'm now based at Canberra, um, which is a great department, and sort of partway through post one exam, which is uh, great news. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, and very much enjoying my job. And I think yeah, nursing has definitely played a big role in that. What do you think your biggest professional or personal challenge has been? to date in your career? That's a big question. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think that's challenging. I've had in anaesthetics as well, I've had some really challenging moments. I think as hard as it was what I went through overseas, I think that set me up well for coping with future challenges. And in my role there, like it was important to keep going and get the things done you know, that were in front of you. But we did have, you know, our doctors, the Australian doctors, as well as the US team who were driving so much of what was going on. I think in anaesthetics, I've definitely had to come across a few confronting cases uh, pretty early on in my training. And I think mm -hmm. trying to rationalise, again, coming back to some of that advice that I received overseas, that you're always trying to do a net good and keeping that in the back of your mind. Anesthetics is an interesting one in that we're very risk adverse. We like things to go well, but getting used to the fact that sometimes 
you're taking completely healthy people and they're not going to wake up and you've done everything you can do. Um, and that's the yeah. nature of the game. When you have unexpected deaths on the table, that's really traumatic, especially with young people who you've met their family uh, fairly full on. And some of the trauma I have seen, you know, working at TCH, which is a trauma hospital, is even after what I've seen, it's, it is very confronting. And I think it, it brings back that, um, you know, it's a privilege what we do to try and help people. But it's a continual reminder, I guess, of people suffering, what they're going through, um, mm. some of the trauma that you see, yeah. Very, very well put, yeah. What advice would you give those who are maybe aspiring from a career in health into medicine? Yeah, I think very rewarding. Do it sooner rather than later because there's so much <laughs> to do afterwards. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, yeah, I'm trying to have a bit of an understanding just by nature of it. The the grind is real and time is a factor. So you need to be able to, um, I guess, acknowledge that when you're choosing what you're perhaps going to do after med school and your junior years. I think the training in Australia is is really good, but the there's definitely the training pathways. Um it's not completely straightforward for everyone and if you have your heart set on something it can sometimes be a little bit tricky and not straightforward and that's hard to deal with and time consuming um but i think if you're passionate about it you should definitely give it a go but it's it's definitely been a humbling experience for me it's i've really reflected on how i learn things i think and I think we're very privileged to be able to be in a profession, you know, it doesn't matter what aspect of health you're in, where there's continual learning. But I think um, the, the teamwork is really nice and that's something I like about the anaesthetics side of things as well. Um, but med is, it's hard. It's a very hard job and I would say don't do it, um, you know, you've, you've got to want to be a doctor and do direct patient care. Um, I think occasionally you come across people who, you know, perhaps just thought it was the right thing to do or had parents that encouraged them to yeah. do it. And I think they're the ones that um, they can often get through. It's not necessarily about whether you're smart enough or not to do it because I think it's more about hard work. It's just that you have to actually love it because otherwise it's too hard um, to keep mm. going with it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Great advice. Thank you so much for sharing your tough times and the stuff you've learnt on your journey from Nambrai <laughs> and <okay>. driving trucks <laughs> through to uh, Afghanistan, hectic uh, experiences there and what a valuable contribution you mm -hmm. made right through to being uh, almost an ethicist. So epic career and thank you for your service Christy oh thanks so much thanks for having the chat Emma